0: You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues Podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues Podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze the various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains distributed ledger technologies and cryptocurrencies. And in this episode, we continue with part 2 of our 3-part series on DeFi Primer, a series where we explore the most fundamental concepts in the world of decentralized finance, also known as DeFi. Be sure to check out part 1 of the series if you haven't already. Now let's have a listen to part 2. Another term that is talked about, or that's one of the most basic terms that that became a, a real hype word you know back in the day when uh, ethereum was really taking off as a platform right like as, as this next big innovation in the blockchain space after bitcoin right and that is the concept of dapps so dapps stands for decentralized applications so an application is nothing but an app uh, for example facebook is an app youtube is an app but these apps are as of today uh, are owned by a centralized company right like facebook or youtube and they run on centralized networks and so uh, they have the same problems of centralization as most other centralized systems Uh, if their servers get hacked uh, your data gets compromised or you know if you're if you're a content creator on on a platform like youtube uh the central platform like youtube has complete authority and complete control over how it can censor you you know it can take down a channel or you know it can it can do whatever it wants right it can change the policies whenever it wants so dApps are applications that are built on decentralized networks such as ethereum and uh, ethereum is by far the biggest dApps platform probably the first one and you know it, it, it still is the leading one so uh, technically, you know, you can build a, a, a social network on Ethereum like Facebook without the need for a central company like Facebook to do so, right? So that's that's basically you know, a, a very short intro of, you know, what a DAP is. So moving on to the next term, which is atomic swaps. So uh, atomic swaps are another way of, you know, exchanging cryptocurrencies from one hand to another hand, you know, if two people want to transact. So Nikhil, do you want to touch upon that?
1: Yeah, so uh, one of the fundamental challenges uh, when you're looking at it from a technical perspective is that if you want to change your Bitcoin, for example, into Litecoin, for example, right? Because we're like we said earlier, Litecoin is probably better suitable for payment services. Back in the day, you didn't have a very good way of doing that unless you went into a centralized exchange. And uh, you went to a centralized exchange like Coinbase and said, okay, fine, create a custodial account and uh, put your Bitcoin in and then basically uh, convert it into Litecoin and then take it out again. And then, you know, the accompanying KYC, EML and all of that jazz, right? So there was always a very strong need uh, for something known as uh, so for some method to be able to directly move money from one blockchain network into another blockchain network. And that's where atomic swaps came in. So uh, in a nutshell, uh, one of the key innovations that allowed for atomic swaps is this, uh, is this feature that came into Bitcoin called uh, hash time locked contracts. Right. HT, uh, LC contracts and uh, those basically were primarily set up as a precondition for implementing lightning networks or payment channels. Uh, So so the key idea behind the hash time lock contract is the fact that you could basically lock up some of your of your uh, BTC or Bitcoin or whatever currency you had in this particular uh, hash time lock contract for a certain period of time and basically make it uh, unavailable to anybody who did not know a common secret, right? So the way actually an atomic swap works currently uh, or the concept basically works is that if you have Alice and Bob, right? And Alice wants, uh, has some, uh, let's keep it simple, let's call it Bitcoin and Litecoin. So uh, Alice has some Bitcoin, She wants some Litecoin and she goes and tells Bob, Bob, do you have Litecoin? He has some Litecoin and he wants Bitcoin. So they they set up a deal. So what what Alice does essentially is Alice basically creates a secret and uh, creates a hash of that secret and puts the agreed upon Bitcoin uh, into that secret uh, and creates a... so. uh, uh, into that in HTLC contract, uh, and and the uh, and gets the contract address, uh, the hash of the contract address, uh, and then basically she gives that hash value of the contract address that she got, which is a combination of the address and her key, uh, to Bob, right? And Bob basically goes and uses that hash to create a corresponding hash time lock contract. A transaction and puts the corresponding agreed-upon Litecoin into that into that transaction using uh, the hash that was given to him by Alice. So now Alice can go to the Litecoin network, uh, Litecoin node, and she can basically, using her secret, unlock uh, or rather sign a uh, unlock a transaction. To that particular contract address, which Bob had created, which she knows because it is the same hash that Bob created it using Alice's hash. So it's the same hash. So Alice knows what 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 transaction it was, and uh, since she is signing it with her value, uh, the signature basically reveals the uh, the secret that she has to Bob, and Bob can then go and unlock uh, the BTC on uh, that Alice has locked using her secret, right? So it's basically this secret uh, uh, this out of band or out of system exchange uh, of a hash which allows for this atomic swap to happen in such a way that it's not like as, as soon as one one party basically opens uh, one transaction, the other party immediately gets uh, access to the uh, to the locked amount, right? So that's basically how an atomic swap works. and yeah, and it's, its it's basically allows you to now directly move money from or convert from one one particular blockchain uh, network, uh, crypto to another one without actually going through an exchange. It's a decentralized swap.
0: So moving on, uh, coming to something uh, that is sort of at the core of. Uh, DeFi right now and that is uh, lending and lending platforms right so as we know as Nikhil mentioned in his intro uh, lending is uh, is an age-old concept you know in, in conventional finance and in the real world as of today with your traditional institutions you have many different kinds of uh, lending markets that, that are there uh, but uh, in, the, in the DeFi ecosystem lending has uh, sort of gone to another level altogether, you know, it's, you can call it lending on steroids, right? So, uh, it's probably the, one of the most lucrative uh, aspects of DeFi right now. So, Nikhil, do you want to jump into that and explain, you know, how lending in DeFi is different?
1: Well, I wouldn't call it exactly different, but it is actually more available. So, uh, so lending in DeFi, is the concept is the same. Uh, you basically... Uh, ask for some collateral, usually in the form of some token, and uh, you lend out another token uh, against that collateral. And uh, depending on which uh, particular product you're using, uh, it might be over-collateralized, under-collateralized, or or not, right? And uh, the reason why you would want to do this is basically as a means of getting some yield on your investment, right? So suppose you have, I don't know, 100 ethers uh, sitting over there uh, in your uh, ether wallet. Uh, This basically provides you with an opportunity to try out various lending platforms using this ether as collateral and earn some uh, yield out of it, right? So uh, most of this lending basically happens the, when you lend out the money, there is a certain amount of fees and there's a certain amount of uh, interest that you send it, lend it out at and that comes to you. One of the cool things about DeFi, which is not necessarily there in the traditional finance world, is that you, when you actually lend out your Ether, you're still in control of the Ether. You are not actually giving it away. You're basically just going to uh, say a particular lending platform like compound and locking up that ether and saying hey okay i've created in compound this particular thing where i have uh, this many ether and i'm going to uh, lend out uh, this ether to whoever for so how many die for example right but that doesn't prevent you from using that ether in another lending situation so maybe you could go to uniswap and say hey okay now i'm going to create a ether and a die liquidity pool right and uh, look for people who are wanting liquidity against uh, die, right or uh, maybe against uh, some other esoteric uh, ERC20 token and, and basically I can earn fees from uh, that from Uniswap so basically I might actually be able to uh, use that Ether as collateral multiple places to get more EPY. And this is basically where DeFi becomes so attractive because it allows me to then start using essentially what is sitting there, right, uh, and uh, fluctuating in price, whatever assets that I have, and actually earning a not insignificant amount of uh, money into it. And uh, if if I want to become even more risky, uh, in fact, actually, this is this is a very interesting uh, new kind of uh, instrument, uh, or rather, I would say, new kind of thing uh, that is existing only in D five. It's not 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 really seen in in the central in the traditional finance world, uh, and that's the concept of a flash loan, right? So, in order to actually conceive of that, you have to think about and understand how lending works in DeFi, right? So lending essentially is not being done by people. It is actually automated lending done using a smart contract. So when I say I'm going to collateralize my ether and lend it out on compound, it is basically I'm going and interacting with the compound smart contract, right? And similarly, it's a transaction that I'm doing over there. And similarly, when when I say I want to create a liquidity pool in Uniswap, It's essentially a smart contract that I'm actually interacting with. So it is possible for me to kind of sequence these kind of smart contract transactions, right? So a flash loan is this idea where you can basically take a loan from somebody, right? So maybe I don't have a thousand Ethers. I have only a hundred ether, but I want to do something, and I know that if I had a thousand ether, I could probably make some money. So what I can basically go is I can go to Alice and who's got 900 ether, and say, "Can you lend me 900 ether in a flash loan?" And for Alice, basically, she would say, "Sure," because the interesting thing about a flash loan is that by the time this this entire transaction, right, they the flash loan lending. And the recovery of the flash loan happens in one transaction. So, by the time I my when Alice lends me her flash uh, lends me a flash uh, her loan her uh, her 900 ether on a flash loan, I can basically take that, uh, do a transaction with Uniswap, do a transaction with Compound, do a transaction with Bancor, say, right, all in sequence and then return the flash loan all as part of one set of transactions that i do in one cycle of the ethereum mining uh, protocol right so by the time ethereum basically moves from block uh, 200 to 201 uh, all these transactions are actually recorded sequentially in 201 and essentially alice has not in all for all effective purposes she's got her money back right so the she it's it's as if she has as from her from the perspective of Alice's account it's as if that money never left her account but in that particular single turnover of a block i have actually uh, executed uh, five transactions right so i basically took the transaction from Alice to get the money then with her money basically Uh, did a transaction with say uh, Uniswap, did a transaction with Bancor, did a transaction with Compound and uh, based on these transactions outcomes, I basically, if I have made some money, I will uh, send back the uh, the money I borrowed from Alice in the fifth transaction and the remaining amount is the profit that I made, right? So that's essentially what a flash loan is. And as you can see, that's something that cannot happen in in traditional finance because you don't have this concept of one block uh, of this discrete set of block uh, cycles happening right it's it's all continuous in uh, in traditional finance world so you can't actually do this in traditional finance world but this that's that's a very exciting kind of a example of how you can actually uh, take all these DeFi contracts that are running around and 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 offering all these services and kind of intelligently combine them to make uh, to make profits.
0: But just to play a little bit of devil's advocate on that, uh, you know, when when the conventional industry looks at this uh, of of lending. Is, is flash loan a basically, you know, a, a tweak in the system, you know, that was not meant to happen? Like, does it actually defeat the purpose of, you know, what a loan is meant to be? You know, a loan is something that you give to somebody so that they use it over a long period of time, you know, because they don't have the money right now.
1: Actually, I would, I would dispute that. So, I don't... There is, no, there is no time requirement for a loan, right? It's the same thing as what would happen if uh, we were in a traditional finance world back in the day, Right. So, uh, if uh in the time, in the 1930s or 1940s or whenever back in the day before uh, internet and before the forms and all of that, right, there used to be a lot of arbitrage opportunities, right, because information uh, took time to flow from one part of the world to another, right. So it was possible for somebody, uh, maybe the first inventors of the telegram, right. Uh, or the first users of the telegram, they basically suddenly had this uh, information advantage because they got to know what was happening in Europe uh, much faster than anybody in the rest of America could know, right? So there must have been a lot of opportunities where somebody would say, okay, they'd go to uh, uh, a bank, say, and say, okay, fine, uh, uh, I'm going to uh, buy x amount of this particular uh, stock at this particular value and it would happen because at america that the stock exchange probably did not know the value of the stock had gone up in britain right and by the time the settlement happened uh, he had already made a profit so it's 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 a similar kind of a concept out right here is a fact what a flash loan is taking advantage of is the advantage of the fact that hey okay time in uh, a blockchain basically is discrete, right? It is basic, It is basically uh, every block mining uh, time, right? So uh, it, if you can do a set of things within that particular block time, it's as if uh, you're, you're basically taking advantage of the limitation of that system. And it's, it's not like, uh, well, to be honest with you, uh, so far I haven't actually seen Many very legitimate possible use cases for it, other than the yield farming use case that I talked about. But even there, uh, in the real world, you would need insanely large amounts of money, right, to kind of uh, take advantage of that. And over time, the way I see it is that uh, all these smart contracts that you're trying to do this to, their oracles and their information also would have become that much better that they would recognize this particular uh, tactic and kind of block it. So, uh, absolutely, in uh, maybe flash loans may not have a practical value after some time. Who knows? But it is possible to do it. And it is not possible to do it in traditional finance right now.
0: Right. So, moving on to another important concept in the blockchain and crypto space as a whole and that is the concept of oracles so in case of defi i guess you know the 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 important part is price oracles so uh, oracles is actually uh, like i mentioned it's, it's a slightly wider concept in the cryptocurrency ecosystem so uh, we know that blockchains are touted to be uh, the sort of a decentralized database that's completely immutable, right? That means once any data gets written onto it, it cannot be changed. And this is probably the most important characteristic of blockchains that makes it very, very valuable compared to centralized databases, right? Uh, But for any practical use cases, it's also important to verify the integrity of the data before it gets written onto the blockchain. So this is where the concept of Oracles comes in. Uh, oracles uh, are a software or they can be hardware that act as an interface between blockchain and the real world. And uh, you know, uh, an oracle is basically designed to ensure that the data that is being written onto the blockchain is accurate before it gets written, right? So in DeFi, you have what are known as price oracles. And these are basically services that provide the prices of various cryptocurrencies as accurately as possible. So any dApps that want to utilize this price data uh, for their application, you know, they can uh, do so without having to worry about its authenticity or accuracy. So uh, that's that's uh, Price Oracles in short. Another concept, you know, which uh, has been uh, very popular in the cryptocurrency ecosystem, you know, since since its early days, you know, when Ethereum was becoming this big platform of dApps and smart contracts, was the concept of prediction markets. So prediction markets were one of the first really relevant uh, use cases or dApps, you know, that, that were being built on uh, decentralized solutions, right, or decentralized networks. So, uh, prediction markets are basically markets where people make bets or wagers on the outcomes of various, uh, you can say, social happenings or events, you know, such as the results of an election or uh, the outcome of a football or a baseball match. So, uh, prediction markets utilize the concept. Uh, that is popularly known as the wisdom of the crowd which basically means that you know if, if uh, many people are aware of uh, an event that is happening or or something that's happening in society uh, in general you know the the insight that comes from the crowd would be more accurate and would be more valuable than one or two people individually right so uh, it prediction markets in a nutshell use this concept to you know create a sort of a, a you can you can call it a gambling platform or or a bet making platform, where people can make bets on the outcomes of various events that are going around you know in society. One of the early prediction markets built on Ethereum was Augur, and uh, Augur is still I think you know one of the prominent uh, platforms in in the prediction market space. Uh, another popular one was Gnosis. So I would say you know prediction markets are, are sort of Uh, pretty uh, relevant use case you know it's 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 facilitated by smart contracts and immutability of blockchains uh, something that that could not be replicated in the conventional uh, financial ecosystem
1: right no and uh, absolutely kk and i think uh, one of the things about prediction markets uh, is that it actually ties in very well to you know things like synthetic assets and derivatives so uh, uh, unless you wanted to speak a little bit more about prediction markets, maybe we could get into that. Sure, absolutely. So uh, I'm going to treat derivatives and synthetic assets kind of similarly. So uh, I, as I, as you probably, uh, as I'd already mentioned earlier when I was talking about traditional finance, derivatives are essentially uh, bets or, uh, uh, or uh, instruments that are kind of created uh, to track the price of an underlying asset right so your uh, when you create a derivative of an uh, when you create an option you are basically placing, placing a bet that okay uh, an underlying asset will reach a particular price uh, or uh, uh, if, you're creating, uh, if you are creating a futures contract you are basically agreeing upon a particular price for a particular commodity etc uh, etc et uh, a synthetic asset essentially is The uh, creating kind of like almost like a digital twin, right? Or a synthetic twin of a real asset. So, synthetic assets uh, are also typically combinations of real-world assets. So you can actually have synthetic assets of two types. So uh, if you take the synthetic asset where I talked about it as being a digital twin of an underlying real-world asset, you can have a synthetic asset that tracks gold, for example, or a synthetic asset that tracks the dollar, for example. Uh, But you also can have a synthetic asset which is a combination of the dollar price, the silver price, and the gold price. Right, and uh, it creates you create an algorithm that kind of takes uh, takes some kind of uh, combination of the of the prices of the three assets, and then basically use that as a synthetic uh, measure. Right, uh, so synthetic assets in a way are kind of derivatives as well. One of the interesting things about this, and it ties into the prediction markets, is that derivatives are kind of like a financial version of a prediction market, right? Because when you are actually doing, creating derivatives, what you are doing essentially are making uh, projections of what the price of uh, a underlying asset is going to be over time, right? Whereas uh, prediction markets, like the one that you talked about, like Augur and Gnosis when it talks about events, right, a prediction of an event, it is a single point in time uh, the, that is probably the major difference. So w- when you have like a sport t- sport betting, it is basically for the outcome of a particular uh, match or something, or uh, the characteristics of a match, like how many goals are going to be scored, etc., etc. Uh, whereas uh, with a derivative, what you are basically building is almost like a uh, predictive graph of what the prices, how the prices move. Uh, of the underlying asset. And then and then t- try to, you know, trade or buy and sell that particular derivative or, or synthetic asset uh, in order to kind of track this. Now, this is very powerful in DeFi because uh, I think as we mentioned earlier uh, with DEXs and all of that, DeFi traditionally only deals with cryptocurrencies, right? So... If you are holding uh, DAI, for example, and you're very passionate about Tesla and you want to uh, buy Tesla stock, you really can't do that using your DAI, right? You have to convert your DAI into something. Uh, you have to get out of DAI, by getting, get, convert, uh, trade that in for uh, dollars or pounds or whatever, fiat currency, and then only you can maybe buy the share. But on the other hand, it is possible for you to uh, create a synthetic asset or go to a uh, synthetic uh, product maker like Synthetics or UMA and uh, basically ask for uh, a synthetic product to be made that tracks the price of Tesla shares, right? And that uh, synthetic Tesla share can then be used by you but traded by you as if you are trading you know regular tesla shares so that's the advantage of uh, creating uh, synthetic assets and derivatives because it allows people who are in inside the defi space to actually start participating uh, and profiting from what is happening in the traditional markets and in the real world so there is uh, obviously some kind of uh, challenges with this. Obviously, in in a lot of these cases where uh, you create synthetic assets or you create derivatives, or you want to do some kind of lending, right? There is this problem of collateralization. Now, in the traditional markets, whenever you went to a bank uh, and you ask for a loan, uh, depending on the size of the loan, they may ask for a collateral or they may not. Right? So, if you are a long-time member of the bank. They may give you a credit card, which is essentially uh, they are allowing you to uh, borrow money from the bank uh, for a certain amount without any collateral associated to it, right? Or they may say, okay, now uh, if you go to the bank and say, okay, I want to buy a house, they may say, no, okay, uh, you need to have a certain amount of money available, or maybe they may ask you to put up some other kind of collateral, or if you want to, for example. If you want to go and buy the house, they may say, okay, uh, give us the title of the house as as a, as a collateral. Um, it's the same thing with DeFi, but uh, in DeFi, what, what typically is used for collateral is other DeFi assets, right? And because it's other DeFi assets, which are also price volatile, it is kind of difficult to kind of decide on how much collateral is the right amount of collateral for a particular loan, if you know what I mean. So if I am basically saying, okay, I'm gonna take a loan of 100 DAI, right? And 100 DAI basically, uh, at that point in time, corresponds to 10 Ether, for example, right? If I take that collateralization of 10 Ether, and you give me get, get the 100 DAI, and the next day the value of Ether falls dramatically, like it often happens in Ether, in in the in the DeFi space, uh, then basically it doesn't make sense for for the person who's borrowing to pay back the loan because uh, his his die is suddenly more valuable, right? And uh, so typically, when you have so so because of this particular problem, typically loans are over collateralized. So whenever you're doing kind of uh, lending or uh, uh, in compound or any of these other places they will ask for typically 1.5 to 1.25 uh, percent 1.25 times the actual value of amount um, of the amount that, uh, of crypto that they are trying to lend out. so in this particular case if they are uh, if you go and ask for 100 die and the value of uh, die is 10 ether they may ask for 12.5 ether or 15 ether right? Uh, and as as collateral and uh, at at first blush then you would think that okay why do i want to make such a loan because i'm actually i'm actually giving them more than what the the loan is worth right and uh, the reason why you want it is because you can then use the die for something that you want to do that you cannot do with it either that is first reason second reason is you still get uh, a better apy right so if you can take this die and give it lend it out somewhere else you can get actually apy on that uh, die which might be even higher than what you are getting or what uh, whatever little you are getting on ether right and uh, so it is still possible to kind of make more money than what your over collateralization has lost you uh, so so that's probably uh, the the part about collateralization uh, on on d which is kind of slightly different from how it does in traditional finance and partly that's because of that price volatile volatility thing and then the, uh, the next thing i actually wanted to talk about uh, was also the liquidity pool and the liquidity pool is uh, it's actually a very powerful concept because it allows DeFi and uh, crypto to kind of address a very large problem that has existed in the early days, right? So whenever you create a new currency or a new asset or a new ERC-20 token, one of the big problems that uh, all of these tokens face is the problem, problem of liquidity there is uh it is very difficult to get your token listed in a centralized exchange like finance or coinbase they're very uh, it is very difficult to list it over there uh, and it's quite hard and it's quite expensive as well okay without listing it it is very hard to distribute these tokens and it's very hard to basically uh, convince people to buy these tokens right? So it is very hard to kind of create a market uh, around these tokens. And uh, so this was the case until Uniswap came came around. And uh, what Uniswap actually brought in was this concept of a liquidity pool, where basically it allowed anyone to interact with the Uniswap market and create trading pairs with Ether On one side and any ERC20 token on the other side. So suppose you had a ERC20 say Nikhil token, right, and uh, uh, you created this project, you created, you pre-mined or you did whatever and you have say uh, a million uh, Nikhil tokens and you have this community and uh, you want to start kind of using this uh, to create some value, what you can do is you can go to Uniswap, and you can say, okay, uh, I'm going to create, uh, I'm going to set up a liquidity pool, and I'm going to set up a liquidity pool for say 100 ethers and uh, 10,000 or 100,000 nickel, right? So uh, 100 ethers and 100,000 nickel is basically one ether is equal to 10,000 a thousand nickel, right? Uh, and uh, as a as creator of the liquidity pool, I can set that ratio and I can put it up on Uniswap and then I can basically uh, have a automated liquidity provider, uh, now liquidity pool available so that anybody who wants to buy uh, Nikhil uh, will have a ready-made place where they could go in and trade their Ether for Nikhil and vice versa. So when I actually go and start building up my my product and I want to reward my uh, and i start distributing nickel tokens to my uh, community uh, for for as as rewards or whatever incentives they now have a way for them to convert that nickel token into something like ether which can then be used for other things right so that actually pulls in more people into my com- uh, into my into my product and gives me a an incentive right so uh that's basically what a liquidity pool is and uh Uniswap was the first one uh Uniswap has been forked multiple times you have sushi swap burger swap apparently there's a food meme <laughs> for liquidity pools apparently <laughs> so there is sushi right. swap burger swap uh uh pizza swap there's a there's a bunch
0: of them uh, and uh, so if i could just uh, quickly interject uh so people who are providing the liquidity in these liquidity pools, they're obviously doing it you know, for maybe uh, a fraction of the transactions. I mean, the, the, the transaction fee that they can generate you know, using this. Absolutely. So
1: they have an incentive. Uh, there is a transaction fee of 0.3%. And that 0.3% basically gets added to the liquidity pool. Uh, and uh, whoever has contributed to the liquidity pool basically when they contribute to the liquidity pool they get a voucher they call it's called they are called lp token liquidity provider tokens so suppose i have created uh, the liquidity pool uh, i get uh, i get um, uh, one liquidity pool voucher uh, and somebody else comes and and adds maybe another 50% right in terms of ether and nickel tokens uh, they will get as a percentage of the of the overall liquidity pool, they will get, we will get corresponding amounts of vouchers. And uh, the 0.3%, basically that is the transaction fees added to the liquidity pool as a whole. And at any point in time, as a liquidity provider, I can actually give up my token and withdraw uh, the corresponding percentage of uh, of, uh, liquidity pool assets. So the combination of, Uh, Ether and Nickel tokens from the liquidity pool and take it away, right? So uh, uh, the 0.3% basically gets automatically divided out to all the liquidity pool providers. And when they withdraw from the liquidity pool, they can take that with them.
0: So then on the flip side, uh, what do you see as some of the potential risks?
1: One of the main things about liquidity pools is that it is an automated tool and uh, it is very sensitive to price. Right, so you will find that actually there is something called uh, a impermanent loss or a divergence loss Uh, that happens, uh, especially when you have uh, a volatile uh, ETH20 token uh, or a falling uh, or the value of the market goes down suddenly. Uh, You'll find that okay there will be people who are coming in so uh, if the actual price of so this is the interesting thing about liquidity pools as the actual price uh, of a token right uh, in uh, in the other uh, uh, products in defi right so if you go to buy an answer if the somewhere else value of ether is falling or if the uh, value of uh, nickel is falling or going up right the Ratio that uh, was originally determined for that particular liquidity pool in Uniswap will no longer be valid, right? So you would have actually got you will have a arbitrage opportunity and you will have people uh, arbitrageurs who will come and uh, try to uh, Buy or sell uh, from that liquidity pool until the price is stabilized again, right? So when they do that buying and selling, right? There is a certain amount of loss. So if the, if the overall value of the, both those tokens go down, uh, you, you would, uh, you would, you would actually suffer a loss, uh, based on the ratio that you had, uh, which may be even more than, uh, the, uh, value that you gain, uh, by, from the fees. But it's called a divergence loss or an, uh, impermanent loss because, uh, in, if you assume a happy path, and that if you assume that okay, that uh, Ethereum is going to go up over time, uh, this might if and you hang on to it, uh, this might actually get wiped out as the value goes up again, right? So uh, that is a risk that you take, but uh, it it depends on uh, you know, uh, I I'd, I'd say it's a kind of like a transitionary risk uh, that depending on when you actually withdraw from the liquidity pool, you may incur that loss or you may not.
0: All right, folks, that concludes part two of our three-part series on DeFi Primer. Be sure to check out parts one and three, where we talk about more terminologies and concepts in the DeFi space. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us on bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.